Sometimes in life, the best example is a bad example. Have you found this to be true? That sometimes the best example is a bad example. You know, sometimes you have a good example and you see that person and you feel like you're already pretty close to where they're at. And so there's no motivation, there's no drive to change what you're doing. You feel like that eh, you're pretty close, there's nothing really to do. Then other times you look at a good example, you look at a really great example, and you feel like that they are so far beyond where you're at that there's no way you would ever catch up to them. There's no way you'd actually ever live up to that example. So why try? You're defeated before you ever begin. But sometimes you see a bad example. And sometimes within that bad example, you see such a negative picture, such a contrast to what you're supposed to be doing that it actually uh, it, it can even sicken you. But it wakes you up to the realities of the situation and drives you to pursue your task with a renewed focus and an intensity of purpose. This morning, as we look to God's Word, we are going to see a bad example of what the people of God should look like. And I hope the obvious sinfulness of this image will be like a set of defibrillator pads pressed upon our chest that will shock us back into the reality of who we are to be and how we are to be living as the people of God. This morning we return to our series looking at the storyline of the Bible and we come to this Old Testament book, the book of Jonah. And here we see in this book, in the prophet Jonah, in many ways, the Old Testament equivalent of the church in much of the United States and Europe today. We see a prophet who is given the task to go to a neighboring nation and to tell them to repent and turn towards the true and living God lest they be destroyed in the judgment that is coming. And yet this prophet did not do as God instructed but instead turned away from his responsibility. And time and time again, the Bible presents to us a picture of a God who is a missionary God. He is a God who seeks after sinners to bring them to salvation. Jonah knew this, but for his own selfish reasons, he did not want to be a part of God's missionary activity. And in that regard, Jonah is very much a picture of the church in the Western world. By and large, we have become complacent and negligent with the clear command and example that we have in the Bible to be telling those who do not know God how to know God, how to be made right with Him, how to be saved from the justly and horrifically severe punishment that is coming for sins. Like Jonah, we have seemed to have largely shunned this responsibility of taking Christ to the nations. And we need to pause and think again about what we would profess to believe and how we are actually living. Even then, even in the midst of, of acknowledging that we are not where we need to be, the one thing that we cannot do is become defeated. Because what we will see also in this passage, in this book of Jonah, is that ultimately God can use anything and anyone to accomplish His purposes. And even if we are moving in the wrong direction, God can turn us back around in the right direction. That He can renew our sense of direction with God and for His purposes and so allow us to repent of the sin of not caring about being involved with God's mission to save sinners and get back in the game passionate about declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now typically as we have been looking at these books throughout the Old Testament, what we have done, we have, we have zeroed in on one key passage and we have walked through that passage and we have shown how it is reflective of all the themes or how it brings together all the themes of the book. Jonah now is a small book, only four chapters, and it is a narrative book, which means we don't need to find a key passage. 
It is small enough that we can actually walk, walk through and read virtually the entire book, uh, seeing what its message is for us today. And so, as there are four chapters in Jonah, we have four things that we are going to consider this morning as we seek to live in light of the God who saved us. We will begin by making an observation about how we should live, and then from that observation about how we should live, we will then draw the implications of how we will go about living that way. So the first thing that we want to see this morning is that as God's people, we are to obey God's missionary call. We are to obey God's missionary call. The book of Jonah begins by telling us this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Imatai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. The book of Jonah begins quickly. There is no in extended introductions. There is no cultural or historical setting. Just the word of the Lord coming to the prophet telling him, go to the city of Nineveh and tell them of my coming judgment. So what's the deal with Nineveh? If we, if we move out beyond just the book of Jonah, the rest of the Old Testament, and even world history, we will begin to understand better what is going on here. Well, the story takes place about 300 years after David was king over Israel. Now, King Jeroboam II is king of Israel, and the nation is prospering under his kingship. However, they are also under constant attack by the nations of Syria and Assyria. The nations particularly hated and feared the people of Assyria because as, in, as its empire continued to grow, Israel's security was greatly threatened. And now in the midst of all this tension between these two countries, God commands Jonah to go to Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. As the capital city of a wicked nation, Nineveh was not a pretty place to be. It was not the place you would want to go on vacation or your honeymoon. It was filled with wickedness, of violence and prostitution. Nineveh stood where modern-day Mosul in Iraq now stands, and it was not a pleasant place to be. More than that, though, God foresaw a time when Assyria would become a scourge upon his people, and he was going to punish them for that. But before he punished them, through the prophet Jonah, he wanted to give them the opportunity to repent of their sinfulness and their wickedness. And the normal response of a prophet was to respond with obedience to God's call. God says, I want you to do this, and the prophet would say, yes, Lord, I will go and I will do that. I don't know how I'm going to do that. I think it's a pretty crazy and wacky idea. Nevertheless, I am your prophet. You are my God and I will go. But look what we read in verse 3. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now, we don't know the exact location of the city of Tarshish, which is a, a real bummer to have to say over and over again. That sounds so stupid on your mouth. Tarshish, Tarshish. Makes me want to eat fish or something. But we're fairly sure that the city of Tarshish was on the far coast of modern Spain beyond Gibraltar. What that means is for, for us and for our understanding of Jonah, basically he is going in the exact opposite direction of where God has called him to go. God has said, go to Nineveh, approximately 500 miles northeast, and instead he goes a couple miles southwest to Java and hitches a ride on a cargo ship to go to the very ends of the known world. Now, why would Jonah do this? Well, to be honest, at this point in the story, we don't know why Jonah is rebelling against the Lord. We don't know why he is refusing the call of God on his life. And in some ways, frankly, it's not important at this point. What is important that, is that we see the contrast here 
between the missionary heart of God who is concerned with reaching the nations before His judgment falls upon them and the hard-heartedness of His people who could care less. The question that we have to ask ourselves is this, whose heart do we have? Whose spiritual DNA runs through our body? Is it Jonah's or is it the Lord's? You see, it was times like this when Joan, with Jonah that God was laying the groundwork for the central mission of those who would be in the new covenant, us, Christians, whose primary obligation was to reach the nations with the good news of God's saving work in His Son. And we talk about mission a lot, don't we? We talk about missions and missionaries a lot. We talk about the great co-mission about how that should shape the reality of our lives. But the question is, does it really shape the reality of our lives? Do we really care about reaching the nations for Christ? If we do, if we actually care about it, then I want us to think, how in the world can the following statistics be true? Think about this. Currently, there are about 100,000 missionaries in the world. 100,000 missionaries. Those missionaries are trying to reach 16,000 different people groups. Over 6,000 of those people groups are considered unreached. That is, there is no gospel presence at all among those groups. They've never heard the name of Jesus Christ. Those unreached people groups equal about one-third of the world's population. Two billion people who have absolutely no access to the gospel. They've never heard the name Jesus Christ and what know what a Bible is. And yet of those 100,000 missionaries on the field, only about 3% work among the unreached peoples of the world. Now let's just leave the rest of the evangelical Christians out of this. Let's just think about us, right? Because that's where change has to start. We are Southern Baptists here. And supposedly on paper we have 16 million of us strong in this country. That's obviously not true. Okay? To give you some example why that's not true, uh, when I first came here there was about 175 members on our roll books, but only about 25 actively people, 25 to 30 active members coming to this church. What does that say? It says our numbers are way inflated. That's not just this church. That's virtually every Southern Baptist church in this country. So being realistic, maybe even a little generous, let's just say there's 10 million Southern Baptists in this country. We support, just as Southern Baptists, about 5,600 international missionaries. That means that less than half, less than half of 1% of Southern Baptists are international missionaries taking the gospel to the nations. Friends, there's something wrong with that picture. There's something desperately wrong with that picture. 10 million Southern Baptists, less than one half of 1% taking the gospel to the nations. We say we care about the Great Commission, But according to those statistics, I have to doubt that. I have to question whether or not we really give a rip about taking the gospel to people that otherwise are going to die and perish forever in hell. We know, we memorize. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus' great commission to us. But are we fulfilling it? The question that we should be asking is not, am I called to go, but am I called to stay? 
the reality of the world today is such that the default call for all of our lives is go unless I call you to do something else. Yes, there are people called to stay. There are people that are called to stay in this country and to hold the rope through prayer and giving for those that are called to go. But let me say this. I, have, I, can, I can think I can rest on good authority when I say it is not God's will that less than 1% of Southern Baptists go and the rest of us stay. Surely that, that cannot be God's will for our lives. We know we have a missionary God who calls us to go and be a missionary people. We can see the need out there. Approximately four and a half billion people who are not saved and should the world end tonight would die forever in hell. Two-thirds of the world's population. That is the need before us right now. But we aren't going. We aren't going to the nations. Most of us aren't even willing to go next door to our neighbor's house and share the gospel with them. We act like Jonah. That could be for lots of reasons. It could be for fear. It could be because we really don't believe the gospel. We really don't believe people will forever burn in hell apart from Jesus Christ. But frankly, it doesn't matter the reasons why at this point. What matters is is the reality that we need to come face to face with. And that is, whether it's here locally or whether it's globally, we have been given a task. Go to the nations. See that they are redeemed. Save from their sins. Not by giving money, not by doing some great work, not by having to live lives and lives of holiness or being reincarnated 50 million years over, but simply by trusting in Jesus who secured their salvation for them. And yet, for some reason, we're too lazy. We're too scared. We're too indifferent to go and take that message. What are we to do? How are we to change? How are we to obey? How are we to become a people? who actually look like our Heavenly Father, a missionary God, being a missionary people. Well, the first thing that we have to do, and this is our second point, is that we need to begin by remembering God's mercy towards sinners. We need, to be, we need to remember God's mercy towards sinners. Though Jonah tries to run from God's mission, he cannot outrun God himself. Look at verse 4. But God hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So the ship threatened to break up, and the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Nothing was working, and these sailors, these hardened sailors who had been in the seas all their life were fearful for their lives. And so they said to one another in verse 7, Come, let us cast lots, we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. God said, I'll tell you why this is happening to you. It's Jonah. They came to him and said, tell us, on whose account has this evil come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry men, the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Even these pagan men say, if your God made the sea and he's called you to do something, why are you so ignorant as to go the opposite direction? Can you not see what is happening here? Are you so foolish? And Jonah says, look, if you guys want to be saved, just toss me overboard. Just throw me into the sea. God, I'm the one that God wants, not you. Everything will be fine. But they don't want to do that. They don't want to be responsible for this man's life, so they begin to row harder, but it doesn't work. And so finally they say, you know, God forgive us, and they throw Jonah overboard, and Jonah begins to sink like a rock to the bottom of the sea. 
And as he is sinking, as he believes his life is about to be extinguished, he calls out to God for mercy that he might save his life. And we read, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now it's here in the story of Jonah that many people begin to doubt the truthfulness of God's word in this story in particular. After all, we say, how can a man survive in a large fish, maybe a whale, for three days? Now it's one thing to hear non-Christians say that. I mean, you you kind of get it, because they don't believe the Bible anyway. But I really scratch my head when I hear Christians say that. And I've actually had Christians ask me, do you really think, do you really think the whale swallowed Jonah and that, and that he survived for three days? And like my old pastor said, hey, if the Bible said Jonah swallowed the whale, I'd believe it. That's what the Bible says, right? It doesn't matter. Okay? But, but, but think about this. As a Christian, our entire religion is based on the historical fact. It has to be fact or else it's, it's, it's all for nothing. Our entire religion is based on the historical fact that the second person of the triune God took on flesh like a man, died for humanity's sin on a cross, then was raised back to life again and ascended back into heaven. If we believe that, is it really hard to believe a man could survive in a fish for three days? Here, the God who created this fish, perhaps even created it for the express purpose of rescuing Jonah on this occasion. We don't know. However it went down, here's a God who created this fish. He knows what his creation can do, and he uses it as the means to save Jonah's life. Now, there may be some who are not Christians, maybe even here. And let me just say, Encyclopedia Britannica, that great Christian institution, no, secular secular book, right, series of books, they have documented cases of similar things happening much later in history, but modern day history. In fact, the most famous case, the sailor who in 1891 fell overboard while this whaling ship was going after whales. He fell overboard, they couldn't find him, he was gone, they kept whaling. The next day, a whale was caught and killed, hauled up onto the boat and gutted, and lo and behold, guess what? There was the sailor who went overboard, James Bartley, who had survived for almost a day and a half. Same kind of thing. And the funniest part is that basically they threw some seawater on him to get all the stomach acids from the whale off, gave him a you know, couple of uh, shots of rum, and then the captain basically said, get back to work. How do you like that? He spent a day and a, a, day and a half in a whale, and it's back to work for you, you old sod. That was it. Uh, but nevertheless, here it is documented that something like this happened. Now, in, in the midst of all of that, the point is frankly not how miraculous or how extraordinary it is that God used this fish to save Jonah. That's not the point. The point here is jo- God had mercy on Jonah. That's the point. God could have very easily said, you're going to disobey me as a prophet? Then I will leave you to your fate. But he didn't do that. He used the fish to rescue Jonah from drowning in the sea. And this is why in chapter 2, Jonah prays with thanksgiving to God. Look at verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, that is, out of the belly of the, the, the land of the dead, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit, Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. 
Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay, for salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah remembered God's mercy. He remembered God saving him from drowning in the sea. And as the result, what we will see, there was a motivation for him to now obey the call of God on his life. He even says, as he's praying in the fish, that now that I've seen you've rescued me, once I'm out of this predicament, back on dry land, I will make a point of going and offering the appropriate sacrifice of thanksgiving to you in your holy temple to acknowledge this great thing that you have done. Likewise, for us as Christians, we must remember God's mercy toward us. Many of us need to to stop and think about what our lives were like before we came to Christ. We must remember the pit in which we found ourselves, buried under the weighty consequences of our sins with no hope. And yet God reached down in His mercy and He pulled our life up from the pit through the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. From heaven, God rescued us. For those of us that were saved at a young age, we must remember the Lord's great mercy in sparing us from a life that could have been much, much worse. But most of all, All of us who are saved must remember that like everyone else, we were once enslaved to our sins, living in the grip of this world and its ruler, the devil, and we were by our very nature children of wrath destined to suffer under God's judgment. And yet God reached down and he rescued us. In his great mercy, he redeemed our life by the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. Now, when we remember the great mercy that God has shown to us, mercy which we did not earn, mercy which we did not deserve, mercy which we were not seeking out, how can we not be motivated to go and share that kind of mercy with others? How can we not take so much joy and have so much thanksgiving in God saving us that we want to go and see others likewise experience His mercy and experience His salvation? And in fact, it's that very thing that we are called to do. The third thing that we see is that we are to proclaim God's saving word. We are to proclaim God's saving word. This is what we see in the end of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3. After Jonah's prayer, in verse 10 of chapter 2 we read, The Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So here's a guy who tries to run from God, winds up getting tossed over the side of a boat into a sea, saved by a giant fish that swallows him up, and then it spits him back out on a dry land. And not just any land... It is a beach closest to Nineveh. And God proceeds to give him the exact same call he had given him before. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, more than just being an odd story, being swallowed and spit up by a fish, not very pleasant, this all, though, is a demonstration of God's wisdom. Because what we know is that one of the most popular false gods in all of Assyria was Dagon, the fish god, the god of the sea. So if you want a pagan people who are sinful to the core, who just don't care that you know they're sinful, running around committing all kinds of acts of violence and injustice and sexual immorality, if you want them to listen to you, what would you do? You would have a big fish go up on the beach and spit a guy out who then gets up to his feet and says, repent for the judgment of God is coming, right? I mean, that's what I would do. I mean, you better believe those people are listening to what Jonah is going to say after that. 
And so verse 3, Jonah arose and he went into Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into, into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now that's all we have of what Jonah says, and frankly that seems like an awfully short sermon. That's probably just a summary. Okay, I know some of you wish mine were that short, but sorry. Uh, I, that's probably just a summary. We don't know for sure, but what we do know for sure is the effect that Jonah's preaching had on the people. Look at verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. All cultural expressions of repentance and sorrow. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. And it said this, By decree the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them all call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, How they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. The most amazing thing about the story of Jonah is not that he survived a a couple nights in a fish. That the entire town of Nineveh was swept up in a spirit of revival and turned to the Lord in repentance of their sins. The people heeded the warning God sent them to turn from their wickedness so that he did not bring the judgment they deserved. The effects of Jonah's ministry are amazing. But what's more amazing, what's even more amazing is the simplicity of his ministry. What did he do? Well, first, think about all that we do today. Think about all the crazy things we do today to get people to come to our church and to listen to us. I heard about one uh, pastor who brought in all kinds of celebrities. And I don't remember what the series was. But he had uh, Hulk Hogan up on the platform, uh, flexing his muscles, tearing off shirts, doing all kinds of stuff. And I'm just thinking, as far as I know, that guy's not even a Christian. I mean, what in the world are we doing? I mean, we have people advertising free gifts in the newspaper for first-time visitors. We have people raffling off cars. We're doing all kinds of crazy things, thinking it's going to get people to come to the church and they're going to get saved. But what did Jonah do? What did Jonah do? He just preached God's word. I fear that we neglect our call to be missionaries both here and to the nations because we feel like we don't have what it takes for people to get saved. We feel like I'm not a great public speaker. We feel like I don't have a lot of enthusiasm. I don't have all the right words. And what does God say? Just proclaim my word. Just tell them, salvation is of the Lord. You will either be destroyed forever, eternally, punished for your sins, or you can turn and trust in my son who bore that punishment for you. How simple is that? For those of us that are Christians, this is the message that we believe. It should not be something new. It should not be saying, I don't know how to present the gospel. Well, what did you believe? If you really believe the gospel, then you know. You know the message to give out. And it's not, it does not need to be something impressive or something flashy. It simply needs to be the word of God proclaimed because that's where the power lies. Now don't get me wrong. We need to be creative in opening doors to the gospel for our culture. But, but we've got to be careful because some of it's just ridiculous. Well, what we need to see ourselves doing is building bridges to people or to the culture around us. But what we can never do is think those bridges is gospel work. 
Those, bri- those bridges are, is not going to save anybody. What's going to save people is the means that God has declared that the word of the gospel goes out of our mouth and into their ears and God's spirit goes into their hearts and opens it up so that they may trust in him and be saved. That's how people get saved. It's through the proclamation of the gospel. As we do that, as we proclaim the gospel, whether in our own city or across the world with an unreached people group, we are fulfilling God's call for us to be missionaries just as He is a missionary God. And when we do that, we need to do it with the heart of God. This is the final thing that we want to see. We are to share God's loving heart. We are to share God's loving heart. You would think that Jonah would be happy about what has happened. You would think he would be happy this entire city has trusted in God and received salvation from the judgment was to come. But look at verse 1 of chapter 4. This relenting of God, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said? Is this not what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord God said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah sees Nineveh repent and spared, and he is livid. He is, he is wanting them to get blown off the face of the earth. He is wanting and waiting for the judgment of God to come upon them because of their wickedness. And yet because they repented, God spared them. And Jonah says, see, this is why I didn't want to come. Because I know the kind of God that you are, God. I know that you are gracious and merciful, and if people actually repent and turns toward you, turns toward you, then you will judge them for their sins. You'll actually bring salvation to them. That's why I didn't want to come. Jonah was mad so mad, in fact, that these people repented and were saved that he wished he was dead. And God says, do you really have a right to be angry over this? Do you really have a right to be this upset because I saved a city of sinners who repented and turned towards me? Jonah doesn't answer. Instead, what we see is that he is still holding out hope that God is not going to spare the city, that somehow Jonah's going to change God's mind. And so verse 5, Jonah went out of the city, and sat to the east of the city and made a little booth for himself. He's setting up shop so he can watch the fireworks happen. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and he made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night? And should I not pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Finally, the real motive behind Jonah's disobedience is made clear. Jonah despises the Ninevites. Jonah hates 
the Ninevites. He hates them because of their wickedness. And he cares more about a plant than he does for their lives. Now think about that. He sees less value in a person from Nineveh than this little plant that came up and lived and died in less than 24 hours. Now Christians, as we read that, it's obviously wrong. But we have to ask ourselves some tough questions as well. Have we deceived ourselves into thinking that we don't bear that kind of hatred or malice towards anyone when in reality we do? Is it possible that we ourselves have allowed, our, have allowed our own hearts to become prejudiced against people and so that hinders us from sharing the gospel with them? Just a couple of weeks ago, back when I was uh, sick with the flu, uh, we were watching one day a bunch of Little House on the Prairie episodes. And uh, one of the ones, this is towards the end of the season, and, uh, or series rather, and, and uh, the doctor is getting old. And uh, he writes off, I don't know who he writes to, but he writes off advertising uh, that a, a younger doctor would come and help him with the practice. And it's, in the, it's uh, towards uh, the, the middle of the night one night, and he's trying to finish up paperwork, and a knock comes out the door, and he opens it up, and a couple step in, and uh, they, he said, I'm the new doctor that you advertised for. And the, and the old doctor gets a funny look on his face because this new young doctor is black. And he says, well, uh, sure, c- c- come on in. And to the course of the episode, this young doctor realizes that this older doctor, uh, who's a white guy, is treating him odd, and he accuses him of being racist. And the doctor gets indignant. He says, I am not racist. He says, I have treated any patient I have ever seen, regardless of their ethnic background, with, with equality, and I have never looked down upon anyone. I am not racist. Well, it goes on and it goes on, and the doctor still continues to have this odd attitude towards this new young doctor. And finally, the doctor is getting ready to leave. And it's at the very end of the episode. It's the last Sunday when they're all at church. Oddly enough, Hollywood gets it better than real life sometimes. The doctor gets up and he apologizes to the community and he apologizes to the young doctor because here is what he says. I had convinced myself I was not racist and I really was. He said, he said when I treated everyone, I did treat them as equals. And I had no problem treating black people who were minors, or who were mill workers, or who were farmers. He said, but until this young man showed up on my door, I never would have saw them as an equal as a doctor. And he publicly, as a Christian, repented of that sin. The two are reconciled, the young guy stayed. Here's the thing. It may not be ethnic, any ethnic issue in our lives. It could be. But more likely than not, here's what I have observed. The very reason that Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh is the very reason that we are not eager to share the gospel. We see the sinners out there and we don't want to have anything to do with them. We see people whose lives are corrupt. They, they live in sin. They enjoy living in sin. And we say, I don't want them in my church. It's not worth my time to go to those sinners and share the gospel with them. They're different than me. They use profanity. They sleep around. They drink to excess. They do drugs. They live on the wrong side of the... Whatever it is. But we despise them for their sin. And so we do not take the gospel to them. And friends, we're no better than Jonah. It is so obvious in the book. It is almost farcical. That Jonah is, is the, the antithesis of everything God's people should be. And we can sit and we can shake our heads and almost laugh when he cares more about a plant than people. And yet, how often are we guilty of the same thing? The question we have to ask ourselves is, why are we not going 
to people down the street, to people downtown? Why are we not going to people around the world and the nations who are sinners? And that's why they need salvation. Why are we not going to them with the gospel? This morning, many of us stand like Jonah. We have a missionary God who calls us to be part of his mission to the nations to rescue them from sin. Yet for various reasons, we refuse to accept the call and do not engage the world with the gospel. What's amazing though, what is amazing and gracious from God is that even God used this reluctant prophet not just to temporarily bring a reprieve to the city of Nineveh, but to do something far more great. When the Pharisees were asking Jesus, give us some sign that you're really the Messiah because we don't believe you. We think you're a liar. He said, you will have one sign and one sign only. It's the sign of the prophet Jonah. Just as when he was swallowed in the fish, he went down into the belly of that beast for three days. So also when I die on the third day, I will rise up out of the ground, victorious over death, just as Jonah came up out of the fish. Here is a prophet who lived an unprophetic-like life, who is certainly the worst example of the prophets we see, and yet God mercifully, graciously used him to be this amazing sign pointer pointing forward to who Jesus would be, authenticating his mission and undergirding the greatest missionary message that the world has ever known. Likewise for us, we may be here this morning and we may feel the guilt and the burden that, and the conviction that we have not, we have not lived as we should have lived when it comes to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. But just like Jonah, God says, I can, I can use anybody. I can turn anybody around if they're willing to follow me. Whether in large ways overseas or in small ways here in Bay City, I can take anyone regardless of their past and I can turn them into someone who proclaims the glory of Christ among the nations. God can do it with all of us as we talk to those around us at home, at work, and in our neighborhoods. God can do it with all of us as we give abundantly and sacrificially to support those who are called to go to unreached people groups around the world. God can do it with some of us in this very room who will be willing to give up comfort and ease of life and the American dream to go to the nations where Christ has not yet been proclaimed and tell them of the God who saves sinners. The book of Jonah shows us that as, as God's people, as Christians, we have a missionary God who calls us to be a missionary people. May we live, may we live the way he desires us to live as instruments of grace to sinners around us. Father, this morning all of us must confess that surely we have not done as much as we could have done. And Father, it is easy to, to make excuses to speak of circumstances of life, to speak of finances, and yet, God, the reality is all of us have much easier lives than so many, not only in this city, but definitely around the world. Father, I pray that you would bring a sense of conviction to us. Conviction, God, that would not just leave us wallowing in self-pity, but, God, a conviction that would lead to repentance and change by your grace. God, I pray that for all those who would call upon you for salvation in this room, for all who would call themselves Christians, that, Father, you would encourage us that by your empowering presence, by the clarity and sufficiency of your word, that, Father, all of us can share our faith, whether here 
or around the world. Father, help us to learn from the past and to move on. Father, help Jonah to be the kind of haunting shadow that stays with us by which we continually turn and look and say, I don't want to be that prophet. Father, help us to to continually remind ourselves of Christ who gave his life for us even when we did not deserve it or were seeking it. Father, when we remember that mercy, help us to be broken in our hearts with love and compassion for those who are still waiting for that mercy to come to their lives. 